Good morning. Uh, this picture comes from a movie. Does anybody know what picture this is from? You're cheating, all right? Kashara already knows. It's her roommate. Anyways, so it's from the movie Mean Girls. Anybody seen it? Rebecca, shout out, all right? Who hasn't seen the movie Mean Girls? Raise your hand. I'm trying to see. All right, cool. There is a surprising uh, amount of diversity involved in what I just saw. I just want to say I thought that the demographics would be maybe a little more slanted than they were. It's all right. It's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. So the movie Mean Girls is about a girl named Katie. Say Katie. Just want to make sure you're awake. Girl named Katie who is from Africa. She's white, and she comes. She was homeschooled. She comes to a high school in America. Can you imagine? All right. I just want you to take a second and imagine what that was like. Um, but as she comes to school. She has some people who love and care about her, and they show her everything that she needs to know about her new school. And one of the primary things that they show her is the lunchroom. Do you see cafeteria written very largely across the screen? And if you're familiar with the movie, what happens is it zooms in real close to the cafeteria, and then it shows the high school lunchroom. All right? Maybe you've been to one. Maybe not. I don't know. I go every week, so I see this firsthand. It's pretty wild. But it starts to explain the differences between the tables. And you know, they're divided. There's all these different cliques. There's all these different groups, and they're divided on, you know, their interests. Some of them are in band. Some of them are nerdy. But probably the biggest divide that cuts off who sits where is typically about their ethnic background. And as it kind of zooms through, there are all these kind of weird, cringy moments of like high school kids making out and like a girl showing off her belly button ring. So it's probably better, right, for you to not feel the cringe of that scene or those scenes. But it's, there's just something to it to see that distinction, to see that divide. And like I said, I go to the high schools, the schools here in this community every week. And so I see it every, almost every, it feels like daily. I'm seeing how in high school students, they don't know maybe some of the things that we know. They're not privy to some of the, the knowledge and information that we have. Some of the stuff that they're learning is probably slanted. And yet somehow, doesn't matter how educated you are, doesn't matter what you know, there still seems to be divides. And it, you know, all this thought about high school lunchrooms and mean girls, it just had me thinking, who sits at your table? Like your literal, actual table, if you have one. Some of us are like, I live in an apartment. We don't have a table. It's like, well, figure it out, all right? Who's a free eater in your apartment with you, all right? Uh, but who sits at your table? Because for some of us, our tables reflect that we're more like mean girls than we are like the Messiah. For some of us, our tables look more like high school lunchrooms than they do heaven's banquet table. And a table is a reflection of what's comfortable, all right? Because we tend to gravitate toward what's comfortable. It's called sin. We've all got it. It's just part of what we do. We gravitate toward what's easier for us, what's more enjoyable for us. And so for some of us, what happens is we have a, a homogenous, you know, frequent flyer group at our tables, the people that we eat with. 
And when you eat, it's a, it's a picture of who you welcome. It's a picture of who belongs with you. It's a picture of who you belong to, who you receive, who you're okay with, who you are close to. And so my question for us today is, uh, who sits at your table? Because our tables reflect our inclusive or our exclusive attitudes, whether we're conscious of it or not. Do you sit with those you don't fit with, be it culturally, ethnic, religious, what have you? Who sits at your table and who doesn't? You remember from last week, we're in this series, Misfits of the Kingdom, and I gave you kind of a, an idea for at least my sermons in, these, uh, in this series, and it was that if misfits don't fit in your mission, then you misunderstand King Jesus and his kingdom. I said if those who are different from you, those who are other than, don't have space in your life, in your calendar, in certain social settings that you find yourself in, then what you're missing out on is who Jesus is, who Jesus includes, and even who you are. I said last week that chapters 8 and 9 answer some questions, specifically these two, who's included in the Messiah's kingdom, and will anyone be excluded? And today I want to answer this question, who will sit at the banquet table of the kingdom? Who will sit at the banquet table of the kingdom? If you've got a Bible and you're not already there, do me a favor, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 will be in verses 5 through 13. Miss Annie read it beautifully. Anytime I get to hear Miss Annie read or pray scripture, it's like a gift. Say that. And so today we're going to look at three points. Pretty simple. We're going to see how Jesus addressed the centurion how he addressed the crowd, and then the call for us today. First things first, let's look at how Jesus addressed the centurion. First point, really simple. King Jesus makes room for the misfit. Hold on to that. King Jesus makes room for the misfit. First thing we're going to look at is uh, verse 5. We're going to start with the misfit. Talked about a centurion. Something that you need to know about this centurion is that he was ethnically and vocationally an enemy of Israel. First part of that is that he's an enemy because of where they are, which is Capernaum. And if you were here in January, we went through the first four chapters, and something that we saw in chapter four of Matthew is that Jesus set up shop in Capernaum, all right? It's a village, North Israel. Do me a favor if you've got it. Can you throw the slide up of the map? Hopefully it's not tiny, tiny. Oh, man, it's stretched. All right, imagine that it's longer, not as wide, okay? And what you'll find is that the center of the Jewish religion is, it's so hard to see. There's Jericho. There's Jerusalem right there, all right? White men can't jump, all right? So there's Jerusalem way down here. Say that. If I don't say anything, you'll remember that. White men can't jump. All right. We'll hoop this summer. Anyways, uh, Jerusalem is way south in Judea, and I want you to look at Galilee. You see the purple dot in the middle, kind of? You see that little blue mass of water? That's the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did the majority of his ministry was in that area. Look how far Jesus and his ministry are from the leadership 
of Israel. Jesus was on the fringes of the community. And I don't, y'all know what series we're in. You already know where I'm headed with this. Can you imagine the types of people that were in Galilee? Let me actually read something from chapter 4. We already read it, I think, but it says, Jesus heard that John was arrested, so he withdrew into Galilee. Verse 13 says, he left Nazareth and he went to and lived in Capernaum by the sea. It says that he went to these specific places and that that was a fulfillment of prophecy, which Matthew continues to say. But I want you to catch something in verse 15 and 16. The land that he goes to, it says, Galilee of the Gentiles, which is strange. But then he says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee of the Gentiles. But Galilee was mostly populated by by Israel, right? By, By Jews. It wasn't populated by Gentiles. But if you can go to the map real quick, there's a red line. Maybe you can see the red line that runs down through all of Israel. And it touches in Capernaum. So there's a major road that would run through this city that Jesus just chose to live in. There was also a customs post there, which means that people were collecting taxes there from Israel to send to Rome. We'll get more into that next week. Pastor Jerry's going to cook. Don't come because you're going to have to say ouch a lot. Um, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. All right. But not only that, but there would be military members who would uh, come here often because they would be traveling or because they would come to make sure that taxes were being paid, things like that. But also, Galilee is very close to Syria. And so most of the uh, people here who live around Galilee, as you can see, most of the people that live there are not going to be Jewish. Jesus put himself in a place to come into contact with misfits. Most of the soldiers who were there would be Syrian ethnically. They would be Gentile. They would be misfits in Israel. And it wasn't necessarily illegal to interact with Gentiles. Uh, It wasn't illegal. There are no laws saying don't talk to, don't interact with Gentiles. But it was considered unlawful because they were considered unclean. Because You remember the implications of uncleanness from last week? If you weren't here, we have a podcast. Go listen to it. But... Being unclean means you can't worship, you're excluded from community, and so it was something that was frowned upon. You wouldn't typically see Jews interacting with Gentiles. Like they, you just don't cross that line. There was a huge distinction. Even in the temple, there was a court of the Gentiles, and Gentiles could not go further into the temple. It was a reflection of how close they were to God's presence. And just a little context for a different chapter. When Jesus goes and turns over tables in the temple because they're selling stuff, it's because they set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So stop running business where worship should be happening. For the Gentiles, I think most of us in here are Gentiles. We should be happy that our Savior turned tables for Gentiles. And I'll sum it up kind of like this. To interact too closely with a Gentile would likely render you unclean, all right? But he wasn't just an enemy because of his ethnicity. He was an enemy because of his vocation. He's a centurion. And as a centurion, how many people do you think that he led, that he was over? A hundred. Everybody was like, I don't want to answer that anymore because I feel like it's a trick question. It was most likely 80, all right? How's that for the weirdest thing, curveball, super thought it was a hundred? Why is it 80? 
I don't know, I'm not a Roman, I didn't make it up. It's just most of them, the way they conducted their armies, they had 80 men. So if you ever want to feel like you're you know, factually correct, that's it, doesn't matter. There were over 80 to 100 men, but 80. But this is what's crazy. As a centurion, he'd be paid 15 to 60 times more than his soldiers. Dude made bank. And since he probably wasn't Roman by birth, he had to serve for about 25 years so he could be granted citizenship. And there were social and political benefits to that. He'd get a pension, and he'd get a plot of land. But that's not the most important thing here. I just want you to be familiar with a centurion. What's more important is that not only is he nationally, ethnically, culturally, religiously an enemy of Jesus and of Israel, but this man <laughs> is a ranking officer in the army that is ruling over the nation of Israel. He represents not just um, the ethnic identification other than Israel, but Roman subjugation, all right? Roman rule over the Jews. That's what this man represents. So I want you to do me a favor. Imagine that you're Jewish, and you see this Messiah come on the scene. You've been waiting for him, and you think this dude's about to come in here, set up a political, physical kingdom. He's going to give us independence and freedom from everybody else, specifically the Romans, and as I'm following him, I'm, I'm noticing he's not really kicking it with the people that I expected, and here comes this Gentile. Wait, no, not just a Gentile. This dude is a Roman cent. Jesus, I'm, I'm mad confused right now. What are you doing? I thought you were our Messiah. I thought you were going to deliver us. You can see some things that are happening here. If you were a Jew in that crowd, what would you be feeling? Well, we know from the text what the Gentile was feeling. He was desperate. He appeals to Jesus. He implores him. He entreats him. He's begging him to heal his servants, to heal his slave. Because he's suffering as if he's been thrown down and held there because he's paralyzed. And there are two quick things that I want to say about that. All right? First thing is this centurion was not allowed to have a family. As you served in the Roman army, you couldn't have a wife and kids, and so many would have illegitimate families or they would have mistresses, or they would spend you know, a cut of their money and buy slaves and have them live in the home with them as family, which is the second thing, and that's slaves. Uh, this isn't transatlantic slave trade that we're familiar with. This isn't American chattel slavery. And I've heard a lot of people defend this somehow, kind of, maybe defend is the wrong word, but talk about this and say it's not as bad, which to some extent is maybe true because there are levels. Like you could be an indentured servant and basically pay back a debt with service. Or maybe you would be treated as a member of the family, whatever that even means. But people were still treated as property. And everyone in this room, I don't care where you come from, what you look like, we should all speak against any form of demeaning God because we're degrading those who bear his image by putting them in any place close to property rather than personhood. Granted, it may have been different because what was practiced and why it was practiced was different, but any practice of putting humans under humans 
lessening the fact that they bear God's image is wrong. We can say that, but the text doesn't say that here. Granted, what the text says will handle mistreatment of others and exclusion of others, but Jesus doesn't speak to the, to the practice of slavery here. I want for Jesus to speak against it, but he doesn't. The Bible does. So indirectly, Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, all speak against slavery. Read Philemon, and we could talk about many, many, many other places that would point us to that. But Matthew doesn't deal with that here, okay? Can we all just say, okay? So can we deal with what Matthew does address? But I wanted to make sure not to p- brush past that because it's wrong. Okay. Not only is this man an enemy, but he also has faith. Ethnically, vocationally an enemy, and yet somehow this man has faith. You see that in his response, and I want to look at three things that he says. First, he calls Jesus Lord. Twice, actually. In verse 6, he says it, and then in verse 8, he says it. And if you remember from last month, Pastor Jerry preached on Matthew 7, and he said, know that those who call me Lord, Lord aren't guaranteed presence into the kingdom. He said, so who's going to get in? If calling Jesus Lord doesn't mean that you follow Jesus and that you won't get into the kingdom, like, what does it require? And he said, well, answer this question. Does Jesus know you? Do you have relationship with him? Well, how do you do that? It's by faith. You believe that he is who he says he is, and you follow him and believe him based on that. And that small glimpse that we get into this man's life, you can see that he has faith because he believes that Jesus is who he says he is. Matter of fact, he believes more than the Jewish crowd that follows him. We'll get back to that in a minute. But just like the man who was healed of his leprosy, the centurion calls Jesus Lord. And the second thing that he says is, I'm not worthy. Say, I'm not worthy. He says that in verse 8. And it isn't actually very clear as to why. Some people think it's because he knows Jesus is Jewish and I'm a Gentile, and so him coming to my house would mean that he would become unclean. I want to be careful of that. That's, that's like a possibility. It's probably not it. More than likely, it's because he's recognizing Jesus' authority, which I'll deal with more in a second. But he says, regardless of why it is, I'm not worthy. Which sounds a whole lot like chapter 3, doesn't it? You remember John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to tie or carry Jesus' sandals? Why? Because he's mightier than I. So you have this Gentile centurion who looks like what Jesus says is the greatest man to ever live in John the Baptist. This Gentile is echoing the forerunner of Jesus. He's coming with the same posture. He's coming with the same humility. Because those who have faith in Jesus seem to be marked by humility. Not only John the Baptist, but the leper last week. The leper had no status, no power, no resources, and yet he had faith, which was worked out in a very humble posture and approach to Jesus. And here you have this Gentile who has status, who has power, who has resources, and yet he has the same faith and the same posture and approach to Jesus. You can tell that he has faith because of his posture. Mm-mm-mm. And they both knew that they were unworthy of Jesus. Third thing that he says, the centurion 
recognized Jesus' authority with multiple words and in multiple ways, but I want you to notice that he knows that Jesus does not have to be in the room for healing to happen, that Jesus simply has to command something to happen from a distance and it will happen. All Jesus has to do, notice his words, only say the word. Only say the word. Some of us need to only say the word spirit, right? We need to have that type of posture where we're like, Jesus, all you've got to do is say it. I'm clinging to you and I need you to speak. I don't know if you will or when you will, but I trust that you have the power and that you have the posture to care for me. And whatever you do is best, but I'm trusting you to say it. I'm trusting you to say it. And the cool thing that I like about this is that he uses his job to understand Jesus' authority. He knew that Jesus had God's authority behind him. He knew that he was backed by God's authority. He knew that he was God's son. He doesn't use those words, which I'll say more about that in a second, but it brings up a question for us. Do you recognize Jesus' authority? What I mean by that is, are you marked by a helpless trust that regardless of your power Regardless of your status, regardless of your resources, whether you're more like the Gentile centurion or you're more like the leper, whatever state you're in, you have a helplessness that marks you because you know that aside from Jesus, I have nothing. So I trust him. And you're marked by a humble approach, a humble holding on to him and saying, I've got nothing else. All I've got is nothing in comparison to what I have in you, Jesus. The reason why I ask that is because many of us You can just think of certain people who are going through stuff and you're like, man, I need you to hear this and I need it to land in you. But many of us, we cannot see God actively working out his authority in our lives and we're crumbling. We're frustrated. We're upset at him. God, where are you? What are you doing? Why is this happening? We cerebrally, we theologically know what's true about him. And yet functionally, we're having a really hard time. That 18-inch connection or whatever it is from our head to our being catching that, there's a log jam. And we can't see how in his authority, in his sovereign control, he's rigged it. He set everything up to continuously, perpetually, always push us back and point us back to him. So do you recognize his authority there? Can you hold on to the fact that whatever he's taking through, he's doing it to teach you about himself? Much like the centurion's job helped him to understand Jesus, what you're going through helps you understand Jesus. Can you at least hold on to that? Can you do me a favor and find it somewhere in yourself to tell God, I need your help. I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. I need you to help me see that you're able. I need you to help me see that you have authority over my situation, but also in my situation. I need you to help me have faith. I need you to help me hold on. I need you to help me believe like the Gentile, believe like the leper. I need to be a person who's marked by a helpless trust and a humble approach to say, you're all I have, nothing else. Help me. Only say the word. Please, Jesus, help me. 
Because if you're not hanging on Jesus' word, there's no telling what you'll be hanging on to. We can all identify with that, can't we? And when you recognize his authority, when you hear what he says about you, you'll believe him. And when you hear what he, hear me, and when you hear what he says to you, you'll obey him. All of us want to believe what he says about us. It's, it's hard to make that, turn that corner and make that move to obeying what he says to us. Speaking of, let's look at what Jesus said to the misfit, shall we? He marveled at his faith in verse 10. Jesus marveled at his faith. Do you hear the type of faith that we're talking about? The reason why Jesus marveled is because however long his ministry's been to this point, he's yet to see anyone respond like this. This Gentile is reflecting that he knows more about Jesus than the Jewish crowd. And he didn't articulate that with the proper terms. Small aside, a lot of us throw a lot of shade at a lot of people because they don't use the proper terms. We think that they're theologically inaccurate, they're theologically off base, they're not theological at all. And we throw shade because they can't potentially articulate it the same way that we do. We, man, y'all, our exclusive attitudes, we throw a lot of shade. That's the point. Jesus is telling us we can't marvel at people's faith because we're too caught up on the words they didn't use. Jesus didn't get caught up on the words he didn't use. This man didn't say, you're the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, like Peter does in chapter 16, and yet Jesus marvels at this. Why? Because he sees the faith that he has. He doesn't have to get caught up on the words. I'm just, hey, Pastor Jerry, this is you right now. I'm just following my pastor right here, all right? He was amazed by the faith of a man who didn't have a paradigm for it who didn't know as much as the Jews, who hadn't been raised knowing about God, his character, or his power. He simply heard about Jesus and believed. And verse 13 tells us how Jesus' response was. He made a servant well. Jesus answered the request that he made by faith. He answered. It didn't matter where this man came from, who his mom was, what he looked like, it tells us minimal details about him. But you know what it tells us about him? That he had faith that made Jesus marvel. That's all that mattered to Jesus then, and that's all that matters now is faith. Anyone will be welcomed by Jesus. Jesus makes room for the misfit who has faith. And this is cool just for my A1 folks, and I'm going to keep it pushing. Anybody, A1, you went through A1, you in here? Anybody want to go through A1? Don't answer that. All right. This might be cookies a little too high on the shelf for some, but see if you can track with me, all right? This story's in Matthew and it's in Luke, all right? And Matthew tells it differently in two ways from Luke. First, the first difference is that in Luke, the centurion sends two different sets of two people to speak to Jesus on his behalf, okay? And so for some of us, we're like, well, did one of them tell the story wrong? Like, is the, is the Bible really trustworthy? Like, what do I do with this? And what we forget is that the authors are using literary tools to weave theological themes throughout their writing, okay? So some say, well, Matthew just abbreviates things. 
It's like, well, maybe. Some say, well, Matthew is basically saying, you know, that the centurions do it, doing it because anything that you did through a messenger, you were doing. And it's like, I mean, like, yes, that's true. I just, I'm reading chapters 8 and 9, and I just, I just see it differently. Because um, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' kingdom is for the misfit, right? For the rejected, for the outcasted, for the excluded. And for those who are in A1, this is what Matthew's doing with what Matthew is proud of y'all. Keep it up, dude. And this is what's happening, okay? This is, you want to know what Matthew's doing? This is what it is. He's saying this. Jesus' authority does not diminish his accessibility. The fact that Jesus has God's authority backing him doesn't mean that he's not approachable. That's what Matthew wants us to see here, that the misfit doesn't have to have messengers between him and Jesus. And some of us need to know that we don't have anything between us and Jesus. Sometimes it feels like our prayers are hitting roof or we got to go through our pastor or this and that. I'm telling you, Jesus has all authority and you have all accessibility to him because of the work that he did for you. So access him. Call on him. And I got one more question for us to consider in this first point. There is nothing between you and Jesus, and there is nothing between everyone else in this room and Jesus. So why are there things between us? If there's nothing separating me from Jesus, say it, say it, then why are there things separating us from one another? Is it because Jesus didn't do enough work? Is, be, is it because Jesus isn't actively at work on his throne ruling and reigning? Is there, is there something else going on? Are we gonna, can we point fingers at something? Could we, could we just maybe, you know, skip over whatever I'm about to say because a lot of ouches. But just do me a favor. Whatever you do, just say who sits. Say who sits at your table. I mentioned a second major difference between Matthew and Luke's accounts of this moment. And that's the inclusion of verses 10 through 12, which I kind of skipped over. And so let's look at those. Let's see how Jesus addressed the crowd. And what we're going to see is that King Jesus doesn't just welcome the misfit. He warns the majority. King Jesus doesn't just welcome the misfit. He turns and warns the majority. And that's my second point. You know, we see that Jesus personally made room for this Gentile centurion who doesn't fit in society. But in verse 10 it says, and he said to those who were following him, aka the Jewish crowd, and he put them on notice. And he warns them, but what did he warn them about? Well, the first thing that he warns them about is their faith. Jesus said, I tell you twice. That's both teaching and warning language. Like what I'm about to tell you is going to be really tough to swallow. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is something that is true, but it's something that will be true. And you need to be aware of that. It comes as a warning. And he addresses their faith. Because not a single person in Israel has responded like this 
Gentile centurion. And would you imagine that, that a Gentile would be the model of how to respond to a Jewish centurion? I mean, Messiah. Let me, this is all, a Gentile is the model for how to respond to a Jewish Messiah. What if Jerry was hanging out with you at lunch and he looked you in the face after somebody came up and talked to y'all and he said, he's doing a better job of following Jesus than you are. You'd be like, ouch, I'm leaving your church. So what do you think these followers are going to do? But that wasn't the only thing getting in their way. Their faith wasn't the only thing that was getting in their way. And what Jesus says next sounds a whole lot like John the Baptist in chapter 3 when he's speaking to the Pharisees who come to the baptism. Do you remember what he said? He said, don't presume that you have Abraham as your father so you're free from the wrath to come. You're somehow going to dodge what God's got coming. Like just because your father's Abraham doesn't mean that you're free from God going ham on you. That was tacky, terrible. Let's edit that out. Just, let's just keep it going. But in a similar tone, but with a different intent, Jesus doesn't just warn them about their faith. He warns them about their ethnic exclusivity. Jesus warned the Jewish crowd about their ethnic exclusivity. I know that feels like, what are you trying to say? It feels kind of weird. Let me show it to you. They're not responding out of desperation. They're not marked by the same faith as the leper and the the centurion, right? They're not recognizing Jesus' authority. And it's because their faith isn't in Jesus' identity. Their faith is in their ethnicity. Now, I'm not trying to make some weird point out of that. Just track with me, okay? They thought they were getting into the kingdom because of who they were, not because of who Jesus was, all right? They're self-righteous, they're self-reliant, and that speaks to their faith, but it also speaks to who they think won't be included. And so Jesus then answers the question, well, who's going to sit at my table, right? Who will sit in the banquet table of the kingdom? When the Messiah's banquet comes, celebrating the fact that his kingdom is here, who will be there? And he answers that with his warning and with the imagery that he uses. So let me move real quick through this imagery. The first thing he says is people will come from east and west, all right? East and west is a reference to what? Gentiles, not Jews. So Jesus is saying the people that will come to this banquet are Gentiles, all right? Which would have been a little weird for Jesus to say the people who are going to populate his kingdom won't be ethnically Jewish, or a part of the geopolitical nation of Israel. It's everyone who bears his image and who's marked by faith, right? The next thing he says is recline at table. Reclining at table isn't just dinner. Reclining at table is like celebratory. You're going to be here for a while. It's elongated. It's like that dinner that you save up for to go out and blow a bunch of money to celebrate something huge. It's like a a party that you throw at the end of a long trek to get a degree or something. Jesus is saying when the kingdom comes, there'll be a banquet. And all of the Jews would have understood this. They would have known that Jesus is referencing the Messianic banquet because they know the book of Isaiah. And in chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, you can write it down, go read about it later, and other places throughout Isaiah, he references the fact that when the Messiah comes, he'll establish his kingdom, there'll be a party. And Jesus is saying the party that you guys have been waiting on will be populated by Gentiles. And so the Jews were going to be like, yo, I I don't understand. What's the deal? They would have thought this was only for them. They were expecting a Jewish Messiah to inaugurate the eternal Jewish kingdom 
that would be commemorated with a Jewish feast. And Jesus lets them know that they've been misinterpreting God's blessing, the Messiah of the kingdom, and the banquet table to celebrate both. Jesus, the son of Abraham, is fulfilling the promise that was made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. That is what is happening here, and it's why he referenced Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of that promise, because of that covenant. And he says, you're sons of the kingdom. And let me, I just, let me make this really clear. The kingdom is supposed to belong to the Jews. It's supposed to be theirs. The issue is that it wasn't only theirs. They were being exclusive, and it was based on ethnicity, nationality, culture. And unfortunately, their exclusive attitudes kept them from fulfilling their purpose and their mission. They were missing their Messiah. They were missing their mission to bless the world. They were missing faith. The result of that isn't good. It's why Jesus says, darkness, outer darkness, which means separation. It's why he says weeping and gnashing of teeth because it represents the agony and the suffering that comes alongside said separation of being outside of the kingdom. But it's funny, he's saying that to the Jews. He's saying to them, look, I'm going to turn from this misfit to you, and I'm saying to you, Jewish crowd, the people who should belong won't. And the people who shouldn't belong will. He's warning them. Telling them you need to respond with faith. And he's foreshadowing the fact that they're not going to be the only people there. Gentiles are going to have a seat at the table. Probably more seats, man. And he's preparing them. He's continuing to weave this thread of, y'all, if you follow me, look forward and see that it's not just a Jewish Messiah. It's the Messiah for all nations. It's the kingdom of of all nations. The implication of that is huge. He's saying, I'm going to weave together a mosaic multitude. And we all love Ephesians 2.10, don't we? We all love when it says, uh, we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he set up beforehand that we should walk in them, right? You know what that first work is right after that verse? It's verses 11 through 22. It's the rest of the chapter. And it's talking about Jews and Gentiles being brought into one body. It's a theme all throughout Jesus' ministry. It's a theme all throughout the Gospels. It's the reason for the book of Acts. It's all throughout the letters in the New Testament. It's even in the book of Revelation. The same banquet is in chapter 19 set up for everyone to be there. You know that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue aren't just going to sing together worshiping the Lamb. They're going to eat together at the banquet of the lamb. Some of y'all are like, I'm going to lunch and eating lamb with somebody who don't look like me today. And I'm like, do that. That's the point. That's what I want us to see. Jesus looks at this Gentile centurion who's saying, I'm not worthy of you coming under my roof. And he says, your faith is going to bring you under my roof. This Gentile says, I'm not worthy for you to sit at my table. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Your faith is going to give you a seat at my table. My question for us is, what about you? That's the question for today. Who sits at your table? Who sits at your table? 
does it look more like high school lunchroom than heaven's banquet table? Are we going to look like the mean girls or the Messiah? This right here is a, a long-term investment. All right? His kingdom is eternal. And it's been inaugurated, but it's not fully established. And so living for the kingdom now reflects the future that we'll have. But it can also affect the future that we'll have. And so the call today is simple. It's for our table to reflect our eternal table. So my third point is this. Make room at your table for misfits. Make room at your table for misfits. Touch your neighbor. Say, neighbor, make room. Touch your other neighbor. Say, neighbor, at your table. And in the same way as last week, I want to answer this question, and then I'll get out of your hair, all right? Let me answer this question and get gone. You might be saying, but Ryan, who are the misfits? Well, today, it's not leper-like individuals. It's centurion-like individuals, all right? Centurion-like individuals. This is people who differ from you nationally, ethnically, culturally, because that's who Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable, in this warning that he's making to his followers. It's going to look different than you're expecting. And similarly, how can we gravitate toward, not away from, those who are unlike us instead of gravitating towards those who are like us? Because at this church, we're going to say it again and again, we don't run from tension, we run to it. And we don't do diversity because it's a fad and a trend. We do it because God said this a long, long time ago. Before our country had problems that created the problems that we had. Before my ancestors made some of y'all's ancestors property. Jesus said this so long ago and my ancestors neglected it. And I refuse, I refuse to live my life any other way than the, the way that Jesus and all of his authority oh, just commands us. I will obey to let my table look like the table that he's preparing for us. And I hope that you'll catch this and say, this isn't just Ryan's sermon, this is Bible. Part of a centurion-like is, me saying that, a historic oppressor. Let me come back to that in a second. This is a little touchy. I'm going to say like three things and I'm going to get out your way, all right? For us, some of us, maybe the misfit that we need to make room for at our table is Muslims. Here's the reason why I say that's touchy. Because I watched a video this week of someone who leads the largest gathering of young adults in the world saying, I wish more people carried what I have in my back pocket, a.k.a. a gun, so that we could kill those, I'm going to say what he said, so that we could kill those Muslims before they kill us. And here's what I'm, makes me want to fight. I'm a one on the Enneagram. So true. <sighs> there is a difference between being a shepherd who wants to protect the people entrusted to you and being xenophobic or Islamophobic. And the irony in that is that the root of the word xenophobic is the same word same root word in hospitality in Greek, 
We're supposed to be welcoming the stranger, not hating them. Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, but then he said, love your enemy. He said, turn the other cheek, not load the other clip and start unloading on fools. Like, I'm not, this ain't about gun control. This is about posture of our heart towards other people. Because saying make glass of the Middle East is not equivalent to saying make disciples of all nations. And I will not, I will not allow anyone around me to start saying bull like that, dude. Are you kidding me? I don't care what religion you follow. You're made in God's image. And for him to say that in front of people and for claps and shouts and cheers to come, man, catch me outside. How about that? I need to get out of y'all's way before I say other stuff that embarrasses my wife, y'all. Makes my pastor make me sit down for a while. For some of us, it's people who do not come from a church background. It's people who maybe don't have the same amount of knowledge or act the same way as we do. Are you comfortable being around someone who doesn't speak the same language as you, who doesn't have the same knowledge, who doesn't get as deep in the Bible study, who maybe, quote-unquote, brings down the level of study that you have at Life Group? Are you comfortable letting that person sit at the table with you? Because it would be really easy for us to squelch, to quench, to choke out the fire that exists in younger Christians who are a part of our church. So for us who are more mature, well, we're not more mature, maybe more knowledgeable, invite and help out, all right? Because it'd be really easy for us to choke them out, having them assimilate into church culture. And speaking of that, speaking of assimilating, some of us look like me. We're a part of the default, dominant, majority culture that is whites in America. There's no guilt here. There's no shame here. This is just factual. And God is calling us to listen to people who don't look like us and then to stand up and turn from those who don't maybe fit with us naturally to the majority who does look like us and say, we're demeaning the image of God even now. People want to say slavery is old, get over it. This is all about individual. If you want to get into individual, let's talk about how my ancestors treated the people who were natively on this land. And now all the money that you get from that oil, I, I got to stop, dude, because I'm going to get off on what people say is a liberal agenda. But you know what? This ain't a liberal agenda. This is Bible. This is Bible. You know what? People call this snowflake language. I hope that I show up to the banquet table and my name tag says Snowflake. I'm serious. Look, I don't care if when I show up, Jesus says you're sitting on the left side of the table or the right side of the table. I'm at the table. And people from both sides, this ain't about a political party. This is about a freaking eternal party, dude. This is about Jesus setting all of us up to engage with others who bear the image of God differently than us. That has implications for who we sit with what podcasts we listen to, what books we read, what institutions we go to, where we put our kids in school. It has so many implications. And for some of us, it's easy to gravitate towards people who look like, act like, talk like us. But what you're doing is you are diminishing your view of the image of God. Because you're seeing one angle. And then the rhetoric that exists over here in any culture can be dangerous. And so what I refuse to do, and let me, let me, I'm just, in the way that we sing Spanish, 
in the way that we allow, not allow for, but encourage people to like wear their traditional cultural clothing, right? We should have more of that here because if we're not careful, we'll follow the stats of multi-ethnic churches and we'll be multi-ethnic but monocultural, defaulting to the majority culture of whiteness. You think I'm kidding? I'll send you articles. One thing to do today, make room at your table by reading Insider Outsider. How many of y'all are reading this book in our church right now? Look at all those hands that are going up and notice who they are. It's life group leaders. It's ministry leaders. We've got to fight for our church to go upstream against what's naturally happening, which is defaulting to a culture that supports me, that privileges me, but not those who bear God's image but don't look like me. If you want to talk about that, we can. Look, the band's coming up, and I'm getting out your hair. I said it. I'm doing it, all right? But my question for us is, as they're coming back up, my question for us is, what will be our legacy, Mercy Street Church? Will we be another stat that says multi-ethnic churches don't work because they end up being monocultural anyways, slanting towards default culture, slanting towards the majority? Or will we say, no, people who have historically been the misfit in this country won't just fit in our church, they'll lead it. We won't just have presence, we'll have expression. We won't just have a seat at the table. You'll be conducting the conversation at the table, leading the table, leading the life groups, leading the church, because I'm not the best at leading people in worship. I'm not the best at leading people, period. There are people who don't look like me, who are better gifted and can help all of us to see God in a more beautiful, robust way, because they're not from one cultural background. And we've got to make room for that at our church. We have to. So who sits at your table? As simple as this. Let's recognize Jesus' authority and let's reflect his banquet table at our tables. Mercy Street Church, make room for the misfit. Love you guys.